Today, we're doing things a little bit differently. In light of recent developments at the United States Supreme Court, we've decided to offer a revisit to a classic episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. In fact, the very first episode of this show. Nearly 17 years ago, when the show began, many things were different. For one, this show wasn't even called Lawyer to Lawyer. It was Coast to Coast. On our very first episode of Lawyer to Lawyer, entitled Robert's Rocky Road, we discussed the nomination to the United States Supreme Court of John Roberts, then a D.C. Circuit Appeals Court judge, now the Chief Justice. Even then, as now, a great deal of attention was focused on the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. But as we approach that likely reality now with the Dobbs case, and as we see more and more attention focused on both the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and the role of its Chief Justice, we here at Lawyer to Lawyer want to reshare this conversation from our archives to provide you with a glimpse into the talking points surrounding his nomination in 2005. So here it is, Robert's Rocky Road. We hope you enjoy this look back and can forgive the more dated audio quality. We'll be back soon with another brand new episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from each coast, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. You can only guess what will happen next, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today on our show, Coast to Coast. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. And I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. You know, when we planned the topic for today's show, the John Roberts Supreme Court confirmation hearing, we had no idea the story would take so many twists and turns. And now we're talking about John Roberts' nomination to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. That's right, Craig. It, it's been quite a week. As, of course, Saturday night, we learned about the death of Chief Justice Rehnquist. Uh, he died at his home after a long battle with thyroid cancer. And then on Monday morning, President Bush held a brief press conference to nominate uh, Judge Roberts uh, to be Chief Justice. Well, of course, the nomination of Roberts as Chief Justice and the yet-to-be-named nominee to fill retiring Sandra Day O'Connor's seat on the bench has monumental complications and implications for the complexion of this court. That's right. And to, to help us uh, look at this and discuss all the angles, we've uh, brought together a, a formidable list of, of guests for the show. I'd like to introduce, first of all, Professor Craig Bradley from the Indiana University School of Law. Among his uh, many achievements, uh, Professor Bradley was, was a clerk for uh, Justice Rehnquist in 1975-1976. Uh, has also served as an attorney in the U.S. Justice Department and an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., Professor Bradley teaches criminal law and constitutional law and has written extensively, including three books and more than 30 published articles. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you. We'd also like to welcome Elliot Minsberg, who's the vice president and legal director of People for the American Way. It's a national organization of about 600,000 members and activists committed to advancing the principles of tolerance, free expression, religious liberty, equal opportunity, and constitutional freedoms. Mintzberg has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs discussing legal and constitutional issues, including CBS's 60 Minutes, ABC's Nightline, CNN's Crossfire, and National Public Radio's All Things Considered. Welcome, Elliot. Pleasure to be here. We're fortunate also to have veteran uh, Supreme Court reporter Lyle Denniston. Lyle is uh, one of America's leading Supreme Court reporters. He's been covering the court for 45 years 
many know Lyle uh, in the in the blogosphere as a writer for SCOTUS blog. Uh, and I've been uh, uh, reading his comments all weekend uh, to stay stay in touch with what's going on with the Roberts nomination. So welcome, Lyle. Glad to be with you. We'd also like to welcome Professor Gail Harriet from the University of San Diego School of Law in my neck of the woods. Harriet was counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1998, advising the then committee chairman, Senator Orrin Hatch, on civil rights issues and judicial nominations. And before that, she was an associate at Hogan and Hartson, which is where John Roberts is from, in Washington, D.C. And Professor Harriet writes for The Right Coast, which is a legal blog found at therightcoast.blogspot.com. Professor Harriet? Thanks for having me here. Glad to have you. Professor Bradley, we know that uh, your, your time is a little bit short today because you're leaving to uh, go to Washington for the funeral. Uh, but uh, we wanted to Start off by just asking you, uh, you've clerked for Justice Rehnquist and, and uh, wanted to get your perspective on, on what, the, what the legacy will be of, of the Rehnquist court going forward and, and uh, what this might mean for, for a, a Roberts court. Well, I think the Rehnquist legacy is that uh, he started off as a rather lonely voice for a, a very conservative agenda for the court. Gradually, he got uh, allies uh, to support this and has uh, moved the court to the right, particularly on matters of uh, federalism and states' rights. And Lyle, you see the court pretty much on a daily basis, given your reporting. One of the issues that I was concerned about is how do you see the administration changing, the administration of the courts from Rehnquist over now to Roberts, assuming that he's going to get confirmed, and in light of what's going on down in uh, with Katrina and the loss of the Fifth Circuit and the number of federal courts and those issues. Do you think he's going to step up and be able to handle that? Well, I think uh, John Roberts is certainly equal to the task. Um, I'm not sure that he's going to run the court with as much expedition as Chief Justice Rehnquist has run. Uh, Bill Rehnquist has really streamlined the court's internal processes, and uh, so much so, in fact, there's almost no uh, open discussion, uh, even during uh, debate on uh, on how to decide cases. The chief runs through the conference, uh, the private conference, very rapidly. Um, I'm sure that uh, John Roberts, uh, at least at the outset, would probably have more interest in a little more uh, crosstalk at the conference than the chief has had, though having uh, been a law clerk of the court, uh, obviously uh, he knows about the need for efficiency. But there are some members of the court, particularly Justice Scalia, uh, Antonin Scalia, who would like a little more discussion in the conferences uh, when cases come up for initial voting patterns. A la the Burger era? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that there I'm, – I'm quite sure, in fact, there won't be the acrimony that there was during the Burger years when conferences uh, often deteriorated into what were uh, pretty close to catfights. Uh, it's not been that way at all under uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. And uh, – Given John Roberts' demeanor and his even-tempered character generally, I think uh, he's going to run a very civil conference. Uh, I think it'll be a very intellectually stimulating conference uh, as well. What have the uh, events of the past week, uh, how have they reshaped the course of what we're likely to see happen over the over the next couple of weeks and through this nomination process? Well, I think uh, I think what we what we're waiting to hear is just. Uh, how fervent the Democratic opposition will be uh, if we're talking only about the short-term process. Um, the uh, Senate leadership wants a vote uh, on John Roberts' nomination before the end of September, 
And uh, to a degree, obviously, the, the Republican leadership has control over that agenda, but uh, they cannot control what the Democrats do once the nomination gets to the floor. So I think there is a possibility, probably more than a possibility, that um, that the final vote on the floor of the Senate will come before the end of the month. Elliot, now between now and the time that the vote does come, what do you see happening in terms of people for the American way and the positions that you're going, your group is going to be taking on Judge Roberts' nomination now? Well, we've, we have opposed Judge Roberts' uh, nomination um, because we think that his record shows that he does not have the appreciation for some of the key rights and liberties and indeed for the importance of federal authority. Uh, which we're seeing more and more in the tragic aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and the importance of that as an important principle. Uh, we expect to continue to make those points in the public and to the United States Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee, where the key question is going to be, will Judge Roberts, in fact, answer questions that many, many members of the committee on both sides of the aisle have about just what his judicial philosophy is and will be on a number of key questions. At the same time, it's critical to keep in mind what one of you said earlier on. This is incredibly momentous. We're about to see a change in almost one-third of the Supreme Court between the Chief Justice and Justice O'Connor leaving the court, and so it's critical that we keep in mind the larger picture, the replacement for Justice O'Connor. Connor as well, where we hope this time we will see the president move towards consensus and not towards confrontation. Well, Professor Harriet, you see uh, this from a very unique perspective, having worked with Judge Roberts and having advised the Senate Judiciary Committee on these kind of nominations. What's your sense of the thing of it? Well, I didn't actually work with John Roberts at, at Hogan and Hartson. I worked with Elliot Mintzberg at Hogan and Hartson. But I think that despite the opposition from organizations like People for the American Way, that more likely than not, uh, Roberts' nomination is going to go smoothly. Now, that said, everyone thought that Clarence Thomas's nomination was going to go smoothly at this point in the process, and that didn't happen, so anything can happen. But right now, things look pretty smooth. I think there's an understanding on both sides of the aisle in the Senate uh, that it is not good for the American judiciary to have a, a process that is, is confrontational. And I think that Bush has a nomination uh, that everybody can get in line behind, or at least most members of the Senate. So I think it's going to go relatively smoothly. But don't hold me to that in case something goes wrong. Craig Bradley, I wonder if you think that uh, the uh, nomination of, of Judge Roberts to be Chief Justice now has has turned the attention more to the next nominee and a little bit away from the Roberts nomination. I agree with Gail that it, to all appearances, the Roberts nomination is going to go very smoothly. And uh, so everybody is now uh, starting to worry about who the, the new O'Connor replacement will be because that's the important one. Roberts looks a lot like Rehnquist, so I don't think anybody is anticipating that he'll vote uh, much differently than Rehnquist, although I think Rehnquist did come to the court with more of an agenda, partly because 33 years ago the law was in a different position than it is now. So I expect Roberts to be uh, generally a respecter of precedent rather than someone who has an agenda to change precedent. Elliot Minsberg, your your people for the American Way have called for uh, Bush to appoint uh, what they've described as more of a consensus uh, candidate uh, to replace Justice O'Connor. What might that person look like? 
I'm not going to name anybody because that would be the kiss of death. The last thing a potential nominee needs is for somebody from People for the American Way to mention them. But there have been numerous uh, Republican-appointed judges, not on the short list in the media, that I think there would be very little uh, dispute about uh, who have have really had no problem being confirmed and have shown in their records that they do have an appreciation for these key rights and liberties and federal authority that we need to worry about. What's also important, though, is how the the administration handles the nomination. I mentioned before the importance of uh, John Roberts answering questions. That becomes even more important because the Bush administration, for the first time in history, has refused even to talk to the Senate Judiciary Committee about revealing internal Justice Department documents that were produced for the Rehnquist and the Bork nominations, for example. So that I think it's, it's particularly important for the Roberts nomination that the president truly come clean on this. When it comes to future nominees, it's very clear that there are consensus nominees that have been mentioned by senators of both parties that the president uh, could certainly opt for. Does his nomination to be chief justice call for a higher level of disclosure than would have been the case I I would argue yes. Again, this is the person that will lead our entire federal judicial system for probably the next 30 years or more. Not only the authority that he has as chief, as Lyle has mentioned, to direct the conference to decide who writes opinions when he's on the majority side, the authority that he has over numerous federal committees, special courts, to speak for the federal judiciary. All these things, it seems to me, make even more important and should set an even higher standard for disclosure, for full disclosure, both from him in terms of answering questions and the administration in terms of producing documents. Well, I think it's time for us to take a commercial break. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, These immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is. And that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? 
InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. This is Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Lyle, from a reporter's perspective, how do you see the release of the documents from the Reagan Library on Judge Roberts and the information that's available now? Well, one of the uh, one of the difficulties I've had in uh, in in reading these documents and and determining their significance is uh, we're talking about a twenty twenty five year gap here. There is a lot of history, uh, including a lot of history for John Roberts that has unfolded since those memos were written. I think they tell us a great deal about uh, John Roberts as a uh, rather bumptious, uh, even at times uh, aggressive uh, conservative, uh, but uh, I'm not sure they tell us very much about what John Roberts would do on the Supreme Court. The service that he has had on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington is too brief, and the output there too limited for us to make any real judgment. So to some degree, um, uh, if you focus uh, on those uh, memos, you're focusing literally on the only public record that John Roberts has made about his substantive views on matters that may come before the court. So I have thought that those memos were um, not a particularly compelling deposit of materials for determining just what John Roberts would do once he got on the court. They're very interesting. They tell us a lot about uh, uh, youthful uh, exuberance. I'm not sure they tell us so much about what, uh, whether or not he would be a more sober, um, a more moderate figure on the court, uh, or perhaps even a more radical uh, figure on the court than those memos suggest. Gail, I've seen that uh, he's Judge Roberts has argued when he was a practicing attorney some 39 times in front of the Supreme Court. Do you think there's anything that can be drawn from that record? Well, I, I think one thing you can say for certain is that John Roberts is an immensely talented lawyer. People in Washington um, who argue before the Supreme Court, uh, write briefs for, for the Supreme Court, speak sometimes with a, with a sense of reverence when they mention his name. I did want to mention something about the memos during, during the White House years, though, that I think maybe is being neglected in the last couple of days. Now that Roberts is, has been nominated, uh, you can look back at some of those early White House memos, and I think at least be reassured on an issue uh, that people don't always talk about, and that is the sense of decorum on the court. John Roberts, in one of his memos for the White House, was asked 
whether it would be appropriate to have, I believe, a sculpture done of then-President Reagan. And I was actually delighted to see that he had a sense of it is inappropriate to do uh, a sculpture of a, a president who is still living. Um, and he generally has taken, on numerous occasions now, a position that I regard as very American, and that is that, that um, there should not be excessive display by government officials, and that would include the president and I assume the court as well. Elliot Minsberg, how is a, a Roberts court likely to, to change the legal landscape? It's hard to tell that until we know who's going to be filling that other uh, other position. But I think there's no question that Roberts, at the very least, would follow in, in the footsteps of Chief Justice Rehnquist and possibly move even somewhat to the right on some important issues. Um, an important one is, again, this issue of federal authority we've talked about. I think Lyle is right that just looking in isolation at the memos from the Reagan era don't tell you much, although in those memos, for example, he argued uh, on behalf of states' rights against things like uh, a strong provision on the Voting Rights Act. But when you couple that together with other parts in his career, you see a career-long pattern where, as a private commentator, he praised some of the court's decisions limiting Congress's authority. And indeed, as a judge, he was one of the only two judges on the D.C. Circuit to dissent in one case and to argue that the Endangered Species Act may well be unconstitutional as applied to a particular development out in California. And that's been an issue where, as I think Professor Bradley pointed out, Chief Justice Rehnquist has led. Uh, but even Chief Justice Rehnquist has recognized some limitations. Rehnquist and O'Connor were the two votes that prevented the Supreme Court from declaring unconstitutional the Family Medical and Leave Act. Where would John Roberts be on that? I think it's, a, it's an unclear and troubling question. Professor Bradley, you clerked for Judge Rehnquist. How do you see the legacy moving on with Judge Roberts? Well, again, uh, I expect Roberts to look a lot like Rehnquist. Uh, I don't think he's going to be a right-wing extremist or a right-wing activist justice, uh, but there's certainly every indication that his uh, views are very similar to those of Rehnquist. Gail Harriet, I wonder from your perspective of having, having worked with the Judiciary Committee, uh, what, what's going on over there right now? What, what, what's the behind-the-scenes uh, activity at the Judiciary Committee as they look forward to the next uh, month or two? Well, the thing that's taking up most of the time for the staff members is, is reading every little line they can find uh, that John Roberts has ever written. That's a tremendously time-consuming uh, activity. And there are lots of people doing it, and everything is being read, you know, five or six or seven times. Uh, they're meeting on things that they consider to be interesting, uh, talking them out. What I think is recent, you know, is, is interesting is that as recently as the 1920s, it was still possible for a Supreme Court justice to resign on a Monday, the president to nominate him on a Tuesday, and the Senate to confirm him on a Wednesday. These Senate hearings that we're preparing for, those are actually new. In, in American history, it wasn't until the 1920s when the first Senate held its first, the first uh, committee uh, held a hearing of this sort, uh, and it wasn't until the 1950s that those hearings became routine. Uh, I believe it was Sherman Minton when FDR nominated Sherman Minton. Uh, he actually refused to appear before his um, Senate committee 
on the ground that he thought it was undignified and it was unnecessary given his extensive record, and they confirmed him anyway. These days, all sorts of time is invested in preparing for these hearings. Uh, I have a feeling that in the end, these hearings are not going to be as acrimonious as some previous ones have been. But the preparation time is, 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 is going in right now. So the hearings that start Monday are, are uh, is historical, uh, a recent development historically in, in, the, in the process of nominating Supreme Court justices. Since the 1920s. Do you think that the, and this is an open question to anybody who wants to jump in and answer this, do you think that uh, the fight is going to be over Judge Roberts? Do you think he is presumed to be confirmed and that people are going to save their capital and, and deal with the next nominee? I think that would be the best strategy. I think we don't know, and I think a lot of it is going to depend, as I said before, on the hearing. There are a lot of folks, including us, uh, that have opposed Judge Roberts, but the proof will be in the pudding in the hearing. And that difference, as Gail has pointed out, has been made in nominations before. At this point in time, people thought that Robert Bork would have no trouble being confirmed, and he was voted down in large measure because of what happened at the hearing. So uh, Roberts as Chief Justice is not necessarily a fait accompli at this point. I don't think a fait accompli. I think that that this is a question that I think would be better asked after the hearings when we see how Roberts answers the many questions that are going to be asked. Lyle Dennison, assuming he does uh, become Chief Justice, uh, what what would be the greatest challenge he'll face when he when he first takes that seat? Well, um, as as an older American. Uh, one of the challenges I think he faces up front is that he's very young and he will be uh, joining a court and trying to lead a court uh, made up of a, of a good uh, collection of seniors and very experienced seniors. Uh, remembering that this is a court that has been uh, very stable in its membership for over a decade. I think he also will find uh, it a challenge to manage uh, uh, the court uh, administratively. The court's undergoing a uh, major reconstruction of its building and its grounds. Uh, that takes a lot of attention. I'm not sure John Roberts has a real idea yet of how much time it takes for the Chief Justice to uh, act as the superintendent of the entire American judiciary. He obviously has uh, will have uh, talented people to work with him on uh, running the judiciary, but uh, th- that's something that I don't think John uh, has done very often. He doesn't he doesn't have, to my knowledge, any known administrative skills, though I suspect he will develop them rather rapidly because he is a very adaptable sort of a person. But I don't think he will have much difficulty getting into the substance of the materials before the court. I'm eager to find out how, whether or not he becomes something of a consensus builder. Um, this is a court that's going to continue to be very closely divided on um, quite a number of issues, the not least of which is uh, the question of uh, the division of power between the federal and state governments, uh, an area in which the Chief Justice was really a pioneer, a modern pioneer anyway, uh, and on um, death penalty questions, on that somewhat arcane question of how uh, uh, American courts look to foreign uh, uh, legal decisions uh, for guidance, um, I think uh, John will have no difficulty whatever getting into the substance. I'm not sure he's going to be able to uh, mask the court uh, uh, in in the way, uh, for example, that uh, the late uh, Justice William Brennan did. He has great skills, but uh, I'm not sure that he has any real preparation for trying to mask a court of uh, 
uh, what we expect to be nine people of uh, varying backgrounds, most of whom have a great deal more experience. Elliot, if you could ask Judge Roberts one question, if you were sitting on the Judiciary Committee, what would that question be? Boy, I hate it if you boil it down to just one question. Uh, but if I had to choose one, I think that that the one that's towards the top of everybody's list is whether Judge Roberts believes that the Constitution does, in fact, protect a right of individual privacy and what that right encompasses. Gail, what would your question be? <laughs> you know, I'm the wrong person to ask that question because I... I feel that most of the questions that get asked to, to uh, Supreme Court nominees, even though they're perfectly legitimate questions, the answers are not wholly reliable. On the one hand, you can ask a very specific question. Judge Roberts, how would you decide this case? And he would, of course, respond by declining to answer that question. On the other hand, you can ask a question that's more abstract about his judicial philosophy. And those are perfectly legitimate questions, but we as lawyers know that questions that are asked in the abstract, frequently the answer doesn't quite convey uh, the individual judge's overall views. Uh, one could answer, you know, I don't believe there is a right of privacy, but I, you know, and it may turn out that person would, confronted with the right facts, find a right that they wouldn't label privacy. Uh, they would label something else, uh, but might cause them to come out uh, on a case um, in the way that a person who supports a constitutional right of privacy might have believed would require them to say, yes, I believe in a right of privacy. Abstract questions are very hard to deal with. Um, and that's why lawyers are trained not to think in abstractions, but to think in concrete cases. Exactly right. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast today and our new Internet radio show. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. We'd like to thank you all for participating and dialing in today. We really appreciate your comments and your insight. And wonderful. Our pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.